0: to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and totally different today. As I said on the last show, we are going to bring you uh, an episode from the Depth of Anesthesia podcast. Now, this, just to remind you, is a fantastic new podcast out of Mass General, out of the MGH, and uh, it's done by one of their residents there, David Howe. He does a really nice job and uh, what you'll hear on this this is their first episode that they did and it's really really well done so remember from what i said last time the whole point of this podcast is to examine claims that are made in anesthesia so things that people say but that may or may not have evidence to back them up and the first one they did is the claim that you should always verify that you can mask ventilate before you give paralytic now like many of you i was absolutely taught this way 100 percent i was taught that you induce with propofol or whatever you're going to induce with, and then you wait. You make sure you can mask ventilate. This is as long as you're not doing a true RSI. You make sure you can mask ventilate, you can move air, and then once you see that you can, you give the paralytic. So that's how I was taught 100%. And they go really in-depth looking at the evidence for whether or not that makes sense. I think they do a very nice job. You're going to hear David, the host, as well as Dan Sadawi-Konefka, who's the program director over there, Um, And they're going to examine this for you. I want you to check it out and then either uh, let them know what you think by going to their website, depthofanesthesia.com, or you can leave comments uh, at ACRAC. Uh, And if you like what you hear, then go ahead and check out the other stuff that they've got. They've got some really interesting episodes. I like them all. They did one recently that I really liked as well, uh, looking at... The practice of a lot of practitioners, you'll see when they can't get a good view intubating, they'll pull out the pillow or the blanket from behind the patient's head and, and hyper-extend the, the head, thinking that'll give them a better view. Uh, and I'm not going to give away the punchline, but that may not actually be what you want to do. So check that out if you want to hear the evidence for that too. But anyway, a lot of great stuff over there at depthofanesthesia.com. In case you're wondering, I receive no money, benefits, uh, or anything from, from this. I'm not an investor. I'm not anything. I just uh, think they're doing a great job with the show. And I'm glad we're finally starting to see some more high quality anesthesia podcasts out there. Um, and I think you'll like it too if you go check it out. All right, here we go. This is their first episode on checking mass ventilation before administering paralytic. Let us know what you think.
1: Welcome to The Depth of Anesthesia. This is a podcast where we critically explore our clinical practices. My name is David Howe, and I'm an anesthesia resident at the Massachusetts General Hospital. And my first guest on this show is Dr. Daniel Sadawi-Konefka, who is the program director at Massachusetts General Hospital. Thanks for joining us, and welcome to Episode 1. Hey, Daniel. Hey, David. How's it going? Pretty well. How are you doing? Excellent. Very excited to be doing this. Excellent. What's our case this week? So our case today is a 72-year-old man, a history of coronary artery disease, hypertension, obesity, and diabetes who is presenting for a laparoscopic umbilical hernia repair. He's 5'10 and 120 kilograms, and you notice he has a pretty thick neck. After induction, you make sure to check mass ventilation
2: before giving your intubating dose of ROC. I get it. Right there it is, right? You're you're doing the mask ventilation before administering the rocuronium. That's the claim. That's the claim. The claim is, I guess, how would we say that? that? That helps, that that's an important thing to do. It gives you useful information. It'll change your management. It's something. It's a habit. It's something you're doing. You're doing it for some reason. It's all of those things. So for our listeners out there, take a minute and just think about your own clinical practice or what you've seen. Yeah, the question is, uh, do you agree with that claim? Uh, is do you think it's important to do verify mask ventilation before paralyzing the patient? We're not, we're not here to talk about whether it is important or not, but let's explore the evidence that underlies uh, the claim. Uh, what do you think the evidence is? This is for our listeners. Uh, do you think there's no evidence, but it sort of stands to reason? Do you think there's expert consensus? Maybe there are mixed trials. Some show one way, some the other. Is it all correlation stuff, or do you think we actually have pretty high-level evidence, causal evidence, randomized control trials? So we asked our providers here at MGH what they think. Do they think this is a safe practice? It's the better practice? You know, it sort of split the group. If you take a look at the the numbers here in front of me, -hmm. It it looks like it was about a third of people... Prefer to establish mask ventilation before. Maybe a third of people mm-hmm. think that they shouldn't, and then a third of them in the middle thereabouts. Pretty evenly split. Yeah. All right. So now let's talk about the rationale. Why would you favor one over the other? So, David, why would you want to verify mask ventilation before paralyzing someone? What's the claim? What, what? How do people explain that? So one of the rationales that I've
1: heard from those who advocate for checking mass ventilation is that by checking mass ventilation before giving a paralytic, you don't burn a bridge. You could still theoretically wake the patient up in the event that you either couldn't secure the airway or notice that mass ventilation is extremely difficult.
2: Yeah i've I've heard some other things too, you know some people say, well, I want to be able to mask them before I give the paralytic because maybe it'll change the decision that I make. maybe I'll mm-hmm. give them one paralytic versus another, something that's going to kick in faster to help with my mask ventilation, so I want to know
1: what are the reasons you've heard for not checking?
2: Oh right, so the people who say no, no, just paralyze right away. so I think the main rationale there is. They say if you paralyze them, you're going to help your mask ventilation and you're going to help your ability to intubate. They also say it's unlikely you're going to be able to wake them up, so you might as well not waste time, especially if it's going to be difficult. Just dive in. Just give the paralytic. It's only going to help you do what you need to do. So those are just the claims that we've heard on either side, the rationales. But uh, if you're listening to this and you think, well, hey, hey, whoa, I actually don't paralyze for this reason or that reason, or I do paralyze for this reason, then just shoot us an email at depthofanesthesia at gmail.com. It's all one word, and uh, we'll get it out to the other listeners. So, David, I know that you actually got a little bit of data about this, about how anesthesiologists in the UK feel about this, right? The 2010 survey, can you tell us about that? So in
1: 2010, Broomhead surveyed 136 anesthesiologists. The results of the survey showed that 43% said that they would not check, and 57% said that they would check. But the interesting thing is that in a hypothetical situation, most of the docs who said that they would not check would give succinylcholine in the event that they couldn't mask. What was also pretty interesting was that trainees were significantly more likely than attendings to be checkers. But the real kicker here is that 20 of the 32, so about 63% of those who said that they wouldn't check, actually replied that they wouldn't volunteer that information if they were asked about it
2: in an exam. Hold on. So just to get this straight, you're saying that Nearly two-thirds of the people who said they wouldn't check wouldn't actually say that on an exam. So, so in real life they wouldn't check. they just paralyze, but exactly. on an exam they'd say, Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna check first. Yep.
1: So, Dan, what do we actually know about impossible or difficult face
2: mass ventilation from prospective series? Right. So difficult and impossible face mask ventilation don't really have consistent definitions in literature. The biggest study I know about is the 2009 one out of Michigan by uh, Sachin Ketterpal. It involved around 53,000 patients. They had around 77 cases of impossible mask ventilation. That's an incidence of about 0.15%. And you mentioned the problems with defining this. The
1: ASA does actually have a definition of difficult mass ventilation. And they describe it as a situation in which it's not possible for the anesthesiologist to provide adequate ventilation because of one or more of the following problems. So those would include inadequate mass seal, excessive gas leak, or excessive resistance to the ingress or
2: egress of gas. Right. And I think the the problem with it is that when you actually try to operationalize that and you get, well, it's this is I think it's fine. There's a little bit of a poor mask, but it's not really that troubling. So the, the, the problem there's a little bit of interoperator variability. And also, you know, a difficult mask in one person's hands, maybe not so difficult in another person's hands. So that, that's a little bit of the, the trouble we see with it. All right, Dan, I think it's time. Let's get into these claims.
1: So for the first claim, which is that checking mass ventilation before giving a paralytic is beneficial, What people will often say is that if mass ventilation is inadequate, you still have the opportunity to wake the patient up before they desat. So what do we know about how long it actually takes to wake someone up
2: after you've induced them? Right. So the idea is how long does it take after you induce for them to desaturate to a point of no return? Yeah, exactly. Well, in 1984, Drummond did this study. Uh, this was published in the British Journal of Anesthesia. He took 20 patients and had them breathe air and then induce them and saw where were they after a minute. And from breathing on room air to after a minute, the the mean saturation was 85.5. Mm-hmm. So that's already a little too low. Yeah, it's pretty low. But, but I don't know that that totally answers the question. Because nowadays we don't induce people on room air, right? We pre-oxygenate them. Exactly. The basic idea behind that, the rationale, if you will, is you know you got about two liters of functional residual capacity. If you bring that up to ninety percent oxygen, ninety percent of two liters is about one point eight liters of oxygen. So if you assume someone consumes, I don't know, two hundred and fifty cc's of oxygen per minute, that's about seven minutes before they would take. Yeah, give or take. That's seven extra minutes before they desaturate there. Right, so uh, I don't know how to pronounce the name, J-E-N-S-E, Jency. maybe? Nice. Um, Sounds nice. close. Yeah, published in Anesthesia and Analgesia. So they took uh, healthy patients that were undergoing elective surgical procedures, and they would induce them, intubate them, and wait to see how long it took for them to desaturate. That's an amazing study. Yeah, Totally what they they and they did actually pretty good pre-oxygenation. They went to end-tidal nitrogen concentrations of less than five percent. So this is mostly oxygen. And for folks with normal weights, the time that it took till their sets dropped below ninety percent was around three hundred and sixty seconds or six minutes. six minutes. Yeah,
1: Do they ever figure out what about in the situation of morbid obesity?
2: <laughs> You've seen the study, I think, right? so yeah, they they had another group that was a morbidly obese group. Um, and, uh, how did they define that? Is a BMI of over, I'm sorry, it wasn't a BMI definition. It was 45.5 kilos mm-hmm. over ideal body weight. That's what they defined as morbid obesity in the study. And for that group, it was 163 seconds, right? That's 2.7 minutes. And I'm pretty sure, though, just for, for, this is important, these patients were all supine. Right. Right. And so if you increase, if you go back up, then your uh, FRC increases, you should get a little bit more time. Right. And this has been studied. Right. So, this is a study by Dixon. This was published in 2005 in Anesthesiology. And they took morbidly obese patients uh, and they randomized them to either supine inductions or 25-degrees head-to-bed elevation inductions. And same sort of thing, they waited for them to desaturate and they used a cutoff of 92% SAT. So, what did they actually find? Right. So similar to the Gen C article, in the supine group, uh, to get to uh, 92%, that was our 155 seconds. Remember, it was 160-something in the Gen yeah, article. Yeah, that's pretty close. Yeah. For the group, though, that was 25 degrees head of bed elevated, 201 seconds. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and this is pretty in line with
1: our general understanding that in the situation of decreased relative FRC, like pregnancy, obesity, Intraabdominal hypertension, they all begin with a low reserve.
2: Yeah, and, and not just the low reserve, but there are also situations where you might have increased oxygen utilization. Exactly. So hypermetabolic
1: conditions like critical illness, pregnancy, pediatric population, all of them are
2: going to have a higher level of oxygen consumption per kilogram weight. Right. So they'll desaturate faster. So I want to tell you about one other study, and this study was done in 2014, published in the International Journal of Clinical and Experimental Medicine. And what these folks did was they they weren't looking at desaturation, but they were more looking at, like, well, how long until they breathe, right? That's a little more functional, uh, relevant to what we want. So what they did was they they took a cohort of patients, 27, right? Uh, I believe all elective gyne cases, yeah, that's right. It was 27 patients. Uh, and these are, by the way, these weren't heavy patients. I think the, the average weight was around 58 kilos. And they gave them uh, an induction. It was two per kilo of propofol, one mic per kilo of Remy and 0.6 per kilo succinylcholine. And they induced them and intubated them. No ventilation during the whole thing. And they waited until they woke up. So... How do they decide if someone woke up? They just look in and as soon as the person opened their eyes or how was how that figured out? Right. So I, th- I think what they did was they actually, after the tube went in, every 10 seconds, they would pat them on the shoulder and call their name. Are you serious? <laughs> totally serious. And, and they waited until uh, either eye opening or okay. spontaneous breathing or something like that. And then there's someone else there who was ready to just uh, induce <laughs> the patient. So how long did it actually take? So, around 245 seconds, plus or minus a minute. So, three to five minutes. Three to five minutes. It's okay. Right. So, this, just to summarize, on, on this side of the claim, if yeah. you're going to wake folks up, you want to be adequately pre oxygenated, maybe get their back head of bed up, um, and count on three to five minutes. So, you want to plan whatever you induce them with uh, to, to be off by then. Right. So Dan, what do you think? Is this possible?
1: Is this plausible? And have you seen people do it in real life? Oh, definitely.
2: Definitely. In fact, there's a, that, that Paul series we were talking about. Yeah. Uh, let's take another look at that.
1: So this was the observational study, right? The one they did over four years, and it was more than 50,000 mass ventilation attempts, right?
2: Right, right. And uh, what, I, what I do want to point out uh, is that of these 50,000, there were two patients who got woken up. Now now you got to bear in mind this is one institution, so uh, it could be other institutions weigh people up a lot more. This mm-hmm. might be a culturally uh, motivated thing as opposed to uh, anything saying whether or not it's possible but But in this series, we do see that people were woken up when they couldn't be intubated or uh, mass ventilated. What do we know about those folks the the two that got woken up? Unfortunately, I don't know a whole heck of a lot about them. I don't recall them being described in the paper, so I can't tell you whether these were super high-risk folks or what the inductions were, or if they used neuromuscular blockade with them. I can't recall. Gotcha. So
1: we know in this study, two got woken up, and what happened to all the other people who were in possible mass ventilation?
2: Right. So of those, uh, 58 were intubated normally. 15 were intubated with some alternative intubation techniques. And two got surgical airways. Gotcha. So
1: let's say in the 77 impossible mass ventilation, about four were,
2: quote-unquote, couldn't intubate folks. Right. The two that got woken up and the two that got the surgical airways, Mm -hmm. right. So the other aspect of
1: this is that those who advocate for checking mass ventilation will sometimes say that depending on whether or not mass ventilation is achievable they'll make a decision about their subsequent steps in terms of either giving a
2: short or long acting uh, muscle paralytic. Do you think that that's valid? So I think what you're saying is that they check to see if they can mask. If they can't, they're going to give something that's on real quick and off real quick. And if they can, then they'll just give whatever and it's fine. That's exactly right. So I think one of the premises there is that Uh, if you want it to come off pretty quickly, you'd give succinylcholine. Whereas if, oh, you know, the mask is fine, doesn't really matter, we're going to be fine. I can give something like cis or rocuronium. And that may have been historically very important, but maybe it's not as important in the era of sugamidex. I think that's a really valid point. And there's actually a study that
1: was done in and published in Anesthesiology uh, talking about reversal of neuromuscular blockade with Sugamidex. And what they did was they looked at about 150 um, ASA 1 to 2 surgical patients, and they randomized these patients to either getting uh, neuromuscular blockade with 1.2 milligrams per kg of ROC or 1 mg per kg of SUX. They induced with propofol and an opiate, which I believe was fentanyl. And they looked for return of neuromuscular function. And what they did was the
2: primary endpoint was recovery of the first train of four twitch. So just to clarify, David, uh, recovery of the first twitch, they must have had some baseline value. And then they said, well, it's when that first twitch is some percent of the baseline value. That's right. So they got a baseline value and they waited to see recovery
1: of the T1 to 10% of that baseline value. So what did they find? So what they found was that the mean time to recovery of T1 to 10% was significantly faster in the rock and Sugaminix group at 4.4 minutes compared with the succinylcholine group, which was 7.1 minutes. They also did a recovery of T1 to 90%, and that was also faster, so 6.2 with the rock sugaminix group and
2: 10.9 with the succs group. So just just to make sure I'm understanding this right, this is not like we're ready to extubate people. No, absolutely not. Right? It's like the T1 at 10% of the baseline, we're not ready to extubate them. Even T1 at 90%, this is not the T4 to T1 ratio. This is just percent of baseline. Is that right? Exactly. And what this suggests and, and what I think it suggests is that
1: these values are probably the lower end. So... It's absolutely not extubatable criteria, but you could use this as a metric of saying it would take at least this long for you to even consider the patient
2: having return of neuromuscular function to a, to a range where you could extubate. And in the case of what we're talking about, it's not necessarily extubate, but I guess uh, exchange meaningful gas, right? Because we just want to keep people alive. Exactly. All right. So if I, if I'm taking your point correctly, what you're saying is that this paper shows that if you give rock followed by sugamidex, which is given three minutes after the rock, that you'll reverse it at least as fast as sucks and Napoleon. Actually I would even take it a
1: step further. This study pretty conclusively demonstrated that the rock sugamidex group actually recovered faster than Sux. And and keep in mind that the Sugamidex was given three minutes after rock administration. And what I believe the authors were trying to accomplish and what they mentioned was that this was an approximation of about three minutes of an attempt at intubation.
2: All right. So punchline based on that article is that uh, if you have Sugamidex, you could probably still go with rock and not use that as your argument for why you check. I think that's fair.
1: There's actually one more rationale that I've heard for checking, and, and this was brought up in our grand round session. One of the docs said that checking is in fact a data point. It will help guide future anesthetics. And for docs looking at this chart, they would be able to either see that this patient was maskable or not, and that could probably
2: help guide future management. What do you think? I think there's some merit there, right? If You you don't know if they're maskable without paralytic, uh, unless you try to mask them without paralytic. The question is, what is the value of that information compared to uh, any support of the alternative claim, which is that giving paralytic early is, is better for other reasons. Mm-hmm. But I don't actually know any data on the value of that information. That is just one of those things that, um, I think actually has some merit to it. There's, yeah. there's some merit to that claim. All right. So let's actually switch to that other claim then. The claim that it's better to just give the paralytic upfront. So remind us, David, what are the reasons? Why do people say that we should just give the paralytic upfront? So Some of the rationales that I've heard is that by
1: giving a paralytic early, you're optimizing your conditions for not only intubating, but also for mask ventilation. And by optimizing those two aspects of your airway management, that will likely outweigh any sort of purported benefits of checking mask ventilation first.
2: So we've got to look at that. We've got to figure out, is there data to support the claim that giving the paralytic is going to help your... Mass ventilation say. So Dan, what do we know
1: about paralytics and mass ventilation, and does giving a paralytic actually help your mass
2: ventilation? So it seems like on a population level, the answer is yes. I'll tell you about a few of the studies. So there's one from 2011 by uh, Warders. They took 90 patients. They induced them, and then they had a blinded anesthesiologist who was grading the difficulty of mask ventilation. And this was sort of a homegrown scale. Uh, it's they called it the water scale, the first author's name. Um, and uh, what they did was they randomized these 90 patients to either getting normal saline or rocuronium. And then this blinded anesthesiologist two minutes later would assess the difficulty of mask ventilation using that water scale. Gotcha. So what did they find? Well, they found that rocuronium improved ventilation scores. After giving rocuronium compared to the baseline values, the difficulty of mask ventilation decreased. Interestingly, they also did a subgroup of patients who had an initially more difficult mask ventilation, and in those patients, rocuronium still improved, actually more significantly, the uh, difficulty, the ease of uh, mask ventilation. That's an important thing because uh, some folks say that the harder to mask people, maybe that's a special type of group of people who paralytic might might hurt them more because the soft tissue is getting in the way in and so forth. In uh, another important side note on this, the group that got saline compared to before and after the saline, there was no difference in the score, which is, which is important because even though the anesthesiologist is blind... They know they're studying something about this, so right. uh, there might be demand characteristics. They might think, oh, I'm supposed to say it got better, but nope, yeah. no, no difference yeah. in the saline group, only the rocuronium group, and they got significantly better. So that bodes well for the relevance of this data. Right, right. But what it doesn't tell us is, well, okay, so it was mat- it was graded as better, but objectively, how much more should I expect in terms of CC's per tidal volume or how, how clinically relevant is this? Yeah, it's right. difficult, but if I can still squeak some air by and they're still alive, mm-hmm. why does it matter? And you did find a study that actually quantified tidal volumes, right? Right. There, um, there, there, there's more than one. I'll talk about two. Okay. So the first study was done in 2014 by Sachdeva and colleagues. And what they did was they took 125 patients who were getting induced, and they put them on pressure control with 15 centimeters of water. I think it was two-handed uh, mask. And they followed tidal volumes. Mm-hmm as the neuromuscular blockade set in. Each of these folks got 0.6 per kilo of rocuronium, so uh, not an RSI dose. Standard intubating dose. Yep, yep. And their primary thing was pre-post initial tidal volumes. These are expiratory tidal volumes that were captured, um, compared with two minutes after the neuromuscular blockade was given. And what they found was an increase in tidal volume Uh, modest 61 cc's on average a couple important caveats one is if you're if you're breathing for someone 12 times a minute 60 times 12 what is that 720 right 720 cc's if that's mostly oxygen uh, even if it's some modest amount of oxygen that's more than enough to sort of maintain vital function Uh, the other thing that's important is though that was the mean increase um, that may not be the case for all patients. But of these 125, there were no patients who had a decrease in tidal volume. Right. So what that
1: is suggesting to us is that by giving a paralytic, at worst, nothing happens in
2: terms of your mass ventilation. Yeah, at least for the people who are included in this particular study, which may not include everyone. Sure. You know, and I think looking at exclusion criteria or or types of patients that are included is, is important. Like we were saying earlier, the type of patient you are taking care of in front of you might meet the exclusion criteria for all the trials you're talking about.
1: Oh, absolutely. So interestingly, as we were in the process of recording this podcast, another randomized control trial came out, right, comparing early and late administration
2: of ROC before and after checking mass ventilation. Right. So this is by Min and colleagues published in Anesthesia and Analgesia. So this is prospective. It's a double-blind randomized control trial. Uh, done at a hospital, I believe, in Korea. And what they did was they took 114 patients, and they randomized them to receive either IV rock before checking or after checking. And so, again, it's 0.6 per kilo that they gave for rock uronia. And they compared the average tidal volume delivered by mask ventilation at 10 seconds, 20 seconds, 30, 40, 50, and 60 seconds after apnea. Okay. And they compared them between the two groups. Right. And what they found was consistent with the such data paper, uh, they found higher tidal volumes in the one group versus the other. The difference was five hundred and fifty two ccs on average in the early rock compared with three hundred and ninety three ccs uh, on average in the in the late administration. Either of those are totally fine, right? Uh, the other thing they found though, which was which is another primary outcome, but there was a sig- statistically significant difference, was that the folks who got early rock uranium, versus late head-earlier tracheal intubations. So that begs the question, when were they allowed to intubate these patients? Right, so it was at a train of four count of zero. Gotcha. So it kind of makes sense. It was 116 seconds versus 195 seconds. So on the basis
1: of these two studies, can we pretty conclusively say that mass ventilation is probably aided by your paralytic, and at worst,
2: it doesn't do anything? You know, I don't. I don't know if, if we can say it conclusively. So I'll, I'll give you just one example here. In this in this min study, some of the exclusion criteria here were predictors of difficult airway, such as, and I'll read it here from the paper: BMI greater than thirty five, mal- potty three or four, mass or radiation changes in the neck, limitations in mouth opening, neck extension or jaw protrusion, history of snoring or sleep apnea. So, so maybe, but but gosh, there's a lot of worrisome exclusion criteria from this paper that we were just talking about. It's It seems like it helps. We don't have a lot of data to suggest that it hurts, but your question, can we conclusively do it based on these two papers that we just talked about? I don't think so. Okay, so there is one paper, though, which I found to be really interesting. They weren't looking at should we paralyze early or late. What they were actually doing was prospectively uh, trying to validate this difficult airway algorithm that they had uh, developed. And uh, so I, I want to talk a little bit about it because the, what they do with paralytic is interesting. Um, it was published in anesthesiology in 2011. This is a paper by, I'm going to butcher the name, I'm sorry, uh, Amathieu, maybe, A M A T H I E U. And it was two year prospective validation um, in patients getting elective abdominal gynecologic and thyroid surgery. Um, so, all in all, this is over 12,000 patients that they looked at. So, what they were doing, again, is is trying to prospectively validate this difficult airway algorithm. So, let me tell you about the algorithm. So, they excluded anyone who was an aspiration risk. Anyone who they thought was going to be an impossible intubation, they intubated awake. What were their criteria for impossible intubation? So, they said if their mouth opening was less than two and a half centimeters, if they had a severe fixed cervical flexion um, or if they had a history of a previous impossible intubation. Okay, so for those patients, they got what, fiber optic or? Yep, a weight fiber optic intubation. Uh, just to cut forward a little bit, um, of the 12,000, over 12,000 patients, that was four patients. Okay. So, and, and, uh, so excluding the aspiration ones, only four got the away fiber up. So everyone else went to the difficult, or sorry, to the, to the next step on the algorithm. So the next step was, the question was, do we think they're going to be a difficult intubation? And, and what they defined that as was three or more predictors of difficult intubation. And here's the catch. If they thought they were going to be difficult, then they gave them succinylcholine immediately on induction. So they absolutely just went for it. Right. Right, and this is, so these are clearly people who are in the camp of just give the paralytic right away. I don't want to wait right. uh, because I need to help my intubating conditions, so on and so forth. Um, and then everybody else, they just induce normally, and then they tried to mask them mm-hmm. to, to actually get a little bit of information. If they found the mask was difficult, then they gave succinylcholine right away. Gotcha. So and, any sign of trouble, they would give sucks. Yeah. So if there's predictors of difficult sucks. If no predictors, but the mask was kind of troubling, still sucks. Right. Everybody else, some alternative paralytic, non-depolarizing. So let me tell you what they found. So like I said, four got awake fiber optics. One had a history of real tough intubation. One had a a distorted trachea because of a mass. Mm -hmm. And two had fixed cervical flexions with limited mouth opening. Uh, Of the remaining 12,221, 98% were successfully intubated with a MAC blade. Right, which leaves uh, 236 patients. Of those, uh, 88% of them, 207, were intubated with a back blade plus a gum elastic bougie. Gotcha. So that leaves what? Uh, 29 patients. Right. So 27 of those, so this is now 93% of the remaining ones, were intubated with a video laryngoscope. Mm-hmm. And that leaves two patients. who were were both uh, successfully managed with uh, an LMA. Uh, Importantly in this study, no one died. Um, 87 patients total, so this is 0.7%, did have a SAT reading of below 90%. Um, 17 uh, patients, so this is overall 0.1%, had a SAT reading of less than 80%, and the lowest SAT reading uh, across the study was 68%. Um, Notably, uh, no aspirations uh, during this, although they did... uh, exclude from the get-go people who are aspiration risk. So, Dan, what do you think is the big takeaway? Well, you know, it wasn't the point of their study, but one thing to take away from this is, hey, here's over 12,000 patients that were managed without checking when it ostensibly would matter most and the people who were really difficult. And complications were minimal, just a little bit of desaturation, but nothing to anything that's concerning. So this
1: seems like it's pretty good data in support of not checking mass ventilation.
2: I guess you, you could take it that way, obviously, with some caveats. So um, first of all, this is this is not what they were intending to study, and there is no comparative group. We have, we have no data from, from this study to say, well, what, what would have happened if they didn't use the paralytic right away? Right. Who knows? Maybe everything also would have gone fine. Exactly. And what about the generalizability of this data? Right. So that's a perfect question. There are a bunch of patients who were not included in this study. So it only included abdominal gynecologic and thyroid surgery patients. So no obstetric patients. No, This hospital doesn't take care of patients with uh, head and neck cancer. So none of those were in there. And none of the other things, uh, cardiac, uh, thoracic, if if there are reasons that those patients might be different, yeah, to conclude anything about that population set would be extrapolation of the data that's here. Now, another thing is that the people managing the airways were, were 15 senior anesthesiologists, sort of seasoned airway experts. So I don't know if this management algorithm, if this approach necessarily generalizes to folks who are less expert in airway. That all said, this is a data set of over 12,000 patients. That includes a lot of difficult airway-type patients that we would commonly see in practice. So I don't think we can ignore it totally, and I think it would support, at least in part, the claim that, uh, at the very least, if you give paralytic early on, maybe not so bad. Yeah, I think that's
1: a pretty fair and balanced interpretation of this data. Thanks. So
2: now what? Now we revisit our questions. Same, same questions we'll ask every one of these episodes. What's your level of belief in the claim? And what is the evidence that you think underlies your belief? So what are the questions for this particular episode?
1: So what is your level of agreement with the claim that you should establish mass ventilation
2: before paralyzing? And what's the level of evidence for what you believe? Excellent. Excellent. We certainly hope you had a lot of fun listening to this. We had a lot of fun making it. We hope that uh, it gets you to think critically a little bit about your practice or the practice that you see and that you stay thirsty. Keep reading papers, keep drawing your own conclusions. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, David.
1: If you enjoyed the show today, leave us a five star review on iTunes. This will help get the podcast out to other listeners. And each podcast is also posted on depthofanesthesia.com. We'll have up to date show notes and references on that website. And you can always drop a comment and uh, we'll try, to, we'll do our best to reach out to you.
2: If you didn't enjoy this podcast, make sure to give us a one star on iTunes and so forth just to save the public from it, you know, to to steer them away. Please don't
1: do that. To our listeners, thanks for joining us this week and a shout-out to the MGH Department of Anesthesia, Critical Care, and Pain Medicine for their continued support and a special shout-out to Dr. Stephen Campbell who is one of our CA2 residents. He composed this exclusively for our podcast and I'm going to leave you in his capable hands.
0: All right. There you have it. That was the first episode of the new podcast, Depth of Anesthesia. Check it out, depthofanesthesia.com. Go to the website acrack.com and let us know what you thought. Do you like this when we introduce uh, other stuff? I think it's a neat way to make sure you're aware of what's out there and you get some good stuff coming down the pipe. If you are uh, a fan, uh, let me know, and I'll try to find some other good stuff, and maybe um, we'll get you some other things coming down the ACRAC feed from time to time. So you can go to ACRAC.com, leave a comment there, let us know what you thought, and, of course, go to DepthOfAnesthesia.com and let them know what you thought and also check out their other stuff. All right. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It helps others find the show. And, of course, if you're interested in supporting the making of the show, you can go to patreon.com slash acrac. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference. We really appreciate it. And also, you can go to paypal.me slash ACRAC. That's paypal.me slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can leave a donation anytime, any place, any amount that you want. And that, of course, is also really appreciated. A huge thank you to those who are already patrons and have already made donations. A big, big thank you, as always, to Dennis Quo, who composes the original music for ACRAC check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today for the ACRAC podcast and the Depth of Anesthesia podcast with Dr. David Howe and Dr. Sadawi Konefka. I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued.